0: It's being billed as one of the most crucial summits in human history, with nothing less than the fate of the planet on the negotiating table.
1: John Kerry said this is the last best hope of stopping catastrophic climate change, and it could be. As delegates from
0: almost 200 nations gather in Glasgow for the COP26 climate conference, the stakes couldn't be higher. But can the conference succeed if the leaders of some of the world's biggest polluting nations haven't even turned up?
1: Things aren't looking great for Glasgow. Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, is almost definitely not coming. And we are actually kind of running out of time.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manvin Rana. Today, good cop, bad cop. What would success or failure look like in Glasgow. Every five years, the news agenda is gripped by cop fever. But for one of my colleagues, it's an annual obsession.
1: I'm Ben Spencer. I'm the science editor of The Sunday Times.
0: Ben has followed the big landmark summits like Paris and Copenhagen, but also the cops that get less attention.
1: I was in Warsaw for COP19, which I think must have been 2013.
0: Not a vintage year.
1: No, it was not a vintage year. And then uh, Lima the following year for COP20.
0: COP26 in Glasgow was actually supposed to take place last November, but it was postponed because of the pandemic. And according to Ben, that delay probably saved the summit from guaranteed disaster.
1: If it had happened in November 2020, we would have had Donald Trump as the US president who had taken the US out of the Paris protocol. So there would have been no US engagement at all. Relations between China and the rest of the world were very, very low at that point. And most of the world was, frankly, not interested in climate at all then because the pandemic was raging and was... Really dominating the thoughts of most of the world. If Donald Trump had won that election, this would be a very different COP. But the fact that Joe Biden won and the first thing he did was to take the US back into the UN climate negotiation process, re sign up to the Paris Accord, really got the whole process going again. The return of the United States in the Paris climate agreement, an accord Trump had decided to leave last year. Just like we need to be a unified nation in response to COVID-19, we need a unified national response to climate change. We need to meet the moment with the urgency it demands. And very soon after that, China came out and made this historic announcement that they were going to have net zero carbon emissions by 2060, which is a huge step for a country that relies 70% of its electricity comes from coal. China will strive to peak carbon dioxide emissions before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. This requires tremendous hard work and we will make every effort to meet these goals. China will step up support for other developing countries and will not build new coal-fired power projects abroad. That was a big step and was actually something which surprised the world and really reinvigorated the process.
0: Are things looking much brighter now?
1: Yeah, I mean, this has been a huge year in terms of progress. Bear in mind that in 2019, the UK became one of the first countries in the world to sign up to a net zero pledge, a target to decarbonise the UK economy by 2050. Colossal new investments in infrastructure and science using our incredible technological advantages to make this country the cleanest, greenest on earth with the most far-reaching environmental programme. And you, the people of this country, voted to be carbon neutral in this election. You voted to be carbon neutral by 2050. And we'll do it. In the last year, we've had something like 80% of the world's economies have joined the UK in that. I mean, the fact that in the last week, countries like Australia and Saudi Arabia have signed up to a net zero target of, I think, 2060 Mm. is phenomenal.
0: Take us back to the start. For a lot of people, it does feel like COP sort of pops up on the news agenda every couple of years. And especially now when it's being hosted here and when nobody's quite sure what it is. So what is a COP and where does the whole idea come from?
1: This goes back to the end of the Cold War. So in 1992, the Rio summit on Earth Day There was an agreement to basically tackle climate change. And this was the new era of post-Cold War, a new era of peace. And the world agreed that we would try to solve the big challenge facing humanity, which was climate change. So they created what was called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is a bit of a mouthful. Everyone calls (laughs) it the UNFCCC. It's still a mouthful. It is still a mouthful. And COP is Conference of the Parties. So it's the parties who are subject to that agreement. And so every year they have a COP, a Conference of the Parties, who have signed up to the UNFCCC. COP 1 was in 1995. COP 3, which was the famous Kyoto Protocol, was in 1997. We came to Kyoto to find new ways to bridge our differences. The United States remains firmly committed to a strong binding target that will reduce our own emissions by nearly 30% from what they would otherwise be. So we've had 25, this will be the 26th. It's only really worked once, which was Paris in 2015. We can look into the eyes of our children,
0: our grandchildren, and we can finally say that
1: we have joined hands to bequeath a more habitable world.
0: We end this COP celebrating a new chapter of hope.
1: The reason why it hasn't worked is because the process is so complex. You've got 197 countries trying to agree something unanimously. Mm. They don't vote, everyone gets a say, and it's got to be a consensus. Meanwhile, you've got NGOs, you've got protesters, businessmen, vested interests all there in this huge conference. There's going to be 25,000 people in Glasgow and wow. at the centre of it are going to be 3 or 400 very very committed climate negotiators trying to reach a detail on something that's very, very complex. And there's going to be 25,000 people around them shouting. I mean, this is... (laughs) So this this is is,
0: the protesters, this is the lobbyists, all shouting.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) And half the countries hate each other. So it doesn't work very often. It worked in Paris when the Paris Climate Accord was signed in 2015
0: Why did that work? How did they manage to get 197 countries all to agree?
1: US and China came to a deal. Barack Obama at the time and Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, met beforehand and agreed some basic tenets of what would be the basis of this Paris Accord. And once the US and China had agreed, it was a matter of getting everyone else on side. But these are the two world's biggest emitters. China's uh. responsible for 28% of all carbon emissions. The US is responsible for 15%. So once you've got those two on board, getting everyone else in line relatively simple. I mean, it was still touch and go because, as I said, everyone's got a say, countries like Tuvalu, countries like the Marshall Islands, whose very existence is threatened by climate change, have a voice, Mm. and they don't the rest of the time. Even at the United Nations, they don't speak very often. And that's why it can't really be done on Zoom because it it just would be impossible.
0: I mean, that is one of the big ironies everyone always points out. You do have an awful lot of people flying around the world every year for these these summits.
1: Yeah, I mean, the carbon footprint's ridiculous. I mean, the (laughs) carbon footprint of COP will be bigger than those of some of the small island states attending.
0: Talk us through some of the other summits that didn't work. You know, what were the stumbling blocks? I mean, you mentioned Kyoto. That's another one people will remember. Mm. And Copenhagen. What did Kyoto achieve and what didn't it achieve? And, and what went wrong with Copenhagen?
1: So Kyoto was difficult. The developed world agreed to a legally binding target for tackling climate change and reducing their own emissions. But they didn't include the developing world. So China, for example, wasn't part of it.
0: Even though they're, they're the biggest emitter.
1: Exactly. And then the U.S. didn't ratify it. So it was hamstrung from the start. And they tried to solve this in Copenhagen in 2009. And you had Barack Obama there. And there was great hopes for 2009. A lot of hype. Very similar to at the moment, actually. I believe
0: we can act boldly and decisively in the face of a common threat. That's why I come here today. Not to talk, but to act.
1: And... Basically, the developed world tried to stitch up a deal. Countries like China, South Africa, India, Brazil, the emerging economies weren't having any of it. And they basically walked out and they took a lot of the developing, small developing countries with them. So there's a huge walkout. So so you're confirming that uh, the disagreement has been resolved? Why don't you ask the Brazilian minister? She's coming right there. They were
0: upset, they said, that central issues of the size of cuts of emissions by rich countries and how much money might come their way to adapt to climate change looked like being set to one side.
1: And at one point they tried to rush out an early draft copy of an agreement and say, look, we're making progress. It was almost like the Neville Chamberlain piece in our time. But it wasn't worth the paper it was written on because it hadn't been agreed.
0: I mean, that's very bad PR. Never put out a statement that nobody's actually agreed to. Exactly.
1: I mean, it was a complete disaster. And in the end, they tried to spin it as a success, but it clearly wasn't. Mm. So then in the following few years, there was an acknowledgement that they had tried to do too much too quickly in Copenhagen. And what you have now is a five-year cycle. So you had Paris in 2015 which achieved a lot. You know, it was the first agreement by the entire world, that's the every country in the world signed up to it, to cut carbon emissions and try and limit global warming to two degrees with this aim of also keeping it to potentially below 1.5 degrees. Now, after Paris, the scientists added up what the commitments actually were, And they realised we were actually on track still for four degrees of warming.
0: This is very depressing because you're telling us out of all 25 cops that have happened, Paris was the most successful and it achieved nothing really.
1: Well, but it didn't because since then things have changed. So they agreed to meet every five years. And since then, the scientists have decided definitively that two degrees isn't enough. We need to get to 1.5 in order to stop the most dangerous climate change. There has been a huge increase in ambition. So after Paris, we're on track for four degrees of warming by the end of the century. We're now on track for something between 2.2 and 2.7 degrees of warming. And most of that progress has been in the last year. Now, in the next two weeks, the aim is that that is going to come down closer to the 1.5.
0: And Ben, as you've got all of these countries coming together, they don't necessarily always get on, but also each of the leaders there is thinking not only about their place on the global stage and trying to save the world, but also about their domestic audience and how telling people they can't use as much energy isn't always going to go down very well at home. I mean, paint us a little picture of some of the pressures that the leaders will be under at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can see it in our own country. In the last week, the government has published its net zero strategy. You know, we had this 2050 target of decarbonizing. We haven't really in this country felt that. We don't really know what that's going to mean for us. Even though we've actually got halfway there already, we Mm. have cut carbon emissions by 49% since 1990, which is incredible. But we've done that by building wind turbines out of sea. We've done that by shutting coal-fired power stations. Mm. The next bit of decarbonising, the next 51%, is going to be harder. So we now know we've got to phase out gas boilers. That's every house in the country. The cars we drive are going to have to change. Petrol and diesel is going to be phased out in this country by 2030 to be replaced by electric vehicles. Things like meat taxes might have to come in. The last thing the government wants to do in this country is to tell people what they can and can't eat. And the net zero strategy published last week had no mention of food consumption at all. So that's this country and we're ahead of the curve. That same conversation now has to happen in every country in the world. But who's going to pay for them to do that? And this is going to be one of the real sticking points in Glasgow, because we have committed it time and time again to helping fund decarbonisation of developing countries. And so far, we haven't done it.
0: Paint us a best-case scenario. What is the most hopeful outcome? <clears throat> if we're being entirely optimistic about this, what might be achieved?
1: Getting commitments from each country. What are they going to do? What's their targets and how they are going to achieve those? And for this COP, it's what will we do by 2030? And at the end of it, all the scientists will add up all the commitments and they will say what that means for global warming by the end of the century. And the best-case scenario is we limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Now, that's probably unlikely, but the aim at the moment is to get as close to that as possible.
0: Does it help, in a weird way, that in the run-up to this particular summit, we've started to see all of these sort of global natural disasters which seem to be a result of freak weather incidents. Has that changed the way governments are approaching this summit?
1: I think very much so. One of the negotiators said to me, past cops the discussion was very much about this science fiction picture of global warming and catastrophe in the future this year countries from all over the world negotiators are starting to say it's happening now you know when you're getting 50 degree days in canada
0: Dozens of people in the Vancouver area of Western Canada have died in an unprecedented heatwave.
1: When you're seeing forest fires all over the world, when you're seeing flooding in Germany.
0: One of the worst disasters to hit the country since World War II. The death toll soaring to around 200 in Germany and Belgium. Nearly 300 are
1: still missing. When you're seeing flooding in London, followed by heatwaves in London, followed by more flooding in London, mm. as happened this summer. More like a river than a DLR station, this was Pudding Lane last night as nearly two inches of rain fell in just a few hours. In Worcester Park in South London, firefighters had to rescue drivers from their cars, submerged in the floodwaters. This is now a pattern. It's beginning to hit the very people who are emitting. China, for example, ironically they've got a big energy problem at the moment which is forcing them to burn more coal Mm. but that's because the coal mines were flooded earlier in the year so you've got this cycle and China world's biggest emitter actually does take climate change very seriously because it knows that its population is very vulnerable to climate change so there's this pressure from within its from its own population to really deal with it.
0: Coming up will China make or break this summit? But first.
1: Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash
0: stories of our times.
1: I'm David Badil. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew.
0: I'm Saeed Varsi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim.
1: Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you
0: get your podcasts. As COP26 begins in Glasgow, there are signs of hope. There is a huge public and increasingly a political appetite to stop climate change in its tracks. But if previous summits are anything to go by, there are plenty of potential pitfalls too. Not least when it comes to China.
1: China's a big deal. I mean, China, as I said, is the world's biggest emitter. When cops have worked in Paris, for example, China was instrumental. When cops have failed and failed badly, like in Copenhagen, China was instrumental in that failure. Now, things aren't looking great for Glasgow. Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, is almost definitely not coming, although he might Mm. surprise us at the last minute. But there will be a delegation. There will be Chinese... Um, How much of a difference does
0: it make if if Xi Jinping isn't there? Does that limit their ability to be flexible when they're negotiating?
1: It's hard to say because Chinese decision-making is completely opaque. Mm. So no one really knows what goes on within the Chinese Politburo. However, there is a culture of kind of joint responsibility. And the Chinese envoy who will be there is hugely respected and has been the Chinese climate envoy for 15 years. But essentially... Yes. If she was there, it would certainly heighten the chances of success at COP.
0: Do we know if they're coming with the expectation of making big commitments? You know, you mentioned they've got their own domestic energy crisis at the moment.
1: If you think about China, this COP couldn't come at a worse time because China has a huge energy problem.
0: Rolling blackouts in China have left this factory racing to catch up on orders. This electronics manufacturer has asked its suppliers to work nights when the power grid is under less strain. It's only a matter of time before the electricity cuts start to bite.
1: And we're going into winter and they're actually genuinely worried about keeping their population warm, especially in northern China. So China's burning more coal than they were last year, but they have these very strict targets. And the difference between China and the West is when China sets a target, it really tends to hit them. China has this target of decarbonising by 2060. It has another target of having a peak in emissions, so emissions will stop rising by 2030. Although the real goal that climate scientists would like to see in Glasgow is that 2030 date brought forward. Because China is so big that every year that it continues to increase the emissions has a real impact on our chance of limiting global warming having said that it's got huge investment in renewable energy a third of all solar panels in the world are in china half of all electric vehicles in the world are in china last year alone china built enough wind turbines to power every house in the uk three times over That was just one year wow so this is a country which takes climate change seriously is piling huge resources into renewable energy but doesn't change the fact that this is not a good time for climate diplomacy when it comes to China. Basically China won't be bullied you can't tell China what to do it's whether China thinks it's within its own interests to turn up to COP engaged and want to achieve a deal and that's not looking good.
0: In the run-up to the summit, you've said before that with things like Paris, the reason they worked was because there were so many agreements beforehand. Right now, is it looking bad?
1: There are some countries which still don't take this seriously. Brazil, for example. Australia's seen as a bit of an outlier on this. You know, Saudi Arabia. But generally, the extent to which the world takes climate change seriously has changed beyond recognition in the last few years. There's a lot of pressure on government. Think about Greta Thunberg.
0: Ministers from all over the world have gathered here to discuss the climate crisis. And they are pretending that they have solutions to the climate crisis and that they are taking sufficient action. But we see through their lies and we see through their blah, 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 and we are tired of it.
1: Think about Mm. David Attenborough. It is crucial that these meetings in Glasgow have success and that at last, the nations will come together to solve the crippling problems that the world now faces. It's popular culture. Think about Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain. And you're willing to go to prison? I am willing to go to prison. (laughs) This is now everywhere. People do take it seriously. And that's not just in Britain and the West, this is globally. So it might not happen in Glasgow in the next two weeks, but things are changing. The question is, will we get there in time?
0: Ben, for those of us sort of watching the headlines and watching the coverage for the next two weeks, what are the things that we should be looking out for to be able to judge whether this has been successful?
1: So people will have date targets and they will say, You know, we will decarbonize by 2030, we will cut our emissions by 60% by 2035. But what really matters at this stage is how they will do that. Will they stop burning coal, producing petrol cars? Will they do something on rainforests? It's actually at this stage, it's really about the practical actions. The cash is really important. Countries committing to putting money into decarbonisation and adaptation to a warming world is important for its own sake, but it's also really important for the diplomacy.
0: You've covered these before, and I'm sure we'll talk to you about this when it's all over, but tell us about how it'll all come together. Does it all come down to the last 24 hours? Is it sort of smoke-filled rooms late at night? Oh, it's absolute
1: insanity. The world leaders will turn up for the first two days and there'll be lots of speeches about ambition. There'll be lots of great words. Prince Charles will talk. David Attenborough will be there. The great and the good will be there. 120 world leaders. It's the biggest gathering of political leaders for six years. It's the biggest political meeting the UK has ever had. And there'll be a lot of kind of energy and spark and excitement at the beginning. And then the world leaders will leave and they'll hand over to the diplomats and it'll be very jolly the first few days. And about halfway through, I predict the middle weekend, things will start to fray. Tempers will start to get going. The first disagreements will happen. There'll be walkouts. There'll be tears. There'll be shouting. Then towards the end, it's it's scheduled to end on the Friday. So it's two weeks and it ends on the Friday. It never ends on the Friday. (laughs) (laughs) And the last few days, no one sleeps, goes on all night, and the world leaders might come back if they think there's going to be a deal. Copenhagen, there's this very, very iconic photograph of Gordon Brown, Barack Obama, Angela Merkel, Sarkozy, all sat there in the middle of the night trying to come up with a deal. And you can see the expression on Barack Obama's face. (laughs) What on earth am I doing? (laughs) and that's classic cop and it'll come down to the last minute and in the end the deals will be done in the corridors there'll be huddles of world leaders and diplomats and negotiators and it'll come down to like one or two different little words that people don't agree on and it's a complicated text they've got to produce this negotiated text which will run to two or three hundred pages which no one will understand except (laughs) the people who in the room and then at the end they'll they'll come up with a fudge or they'll come up with a great deal. Which do you think we'll get? I think things aren't looking great. COP won't necessarily achieve everything that people want it to. I hope there'll be progress. I think there will be progress. And the important thing is that it doesn't stall the process of negotiations because... This idea of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, we are actually kind of running out of time on that. we probably have a few more years, but as long as enough progress is made to keep that goal alive, that's the main thing.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Sunday Times science editor, Ben Spencer. You can read more of Ben's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print on Sundays. We'll have more in-depth coverage of COP26 across the papers and on Times Radio over the next fortnight, and it's a subject we'll be returning to. The producer today was Chris Wade, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line. You can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.